This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. Today my guest is Mr. Oliver Epstein. He's the managing director and owner of Chrono Swiss. Oliver, welcome. Good morning, Ariel. How are you? I'm I'm good. I'm thinking back to some of our last conversations. I remember uh, at one point we had this very in-depth conversation about philosophy in the watch industry in Dubai uh, while we were at the Dubai Watch Week event. And, you know, here we are, two people that, you know, were not raised in Dubai in this one of many meccas of watch appreciation. And I remember at that moment thinking to ourselves uh, or thinking to myself, how in a, it, we're privileged, but it's also very strange, the industry that we're in, where we're in the industry of making machines, but they're not there for performance. They're about emotions. And we're in these strange places and strange contexts. Do you, do you sometimes feel that there's something very surreal about being in the watch industry? It's a good question, Ariel. I, I think it's a beautiful industry. And it's an industry that gives me a lot of pleasure. Producing products that are meant to... to uh, be presented and given away presents and for, for fun. Uh, I think it's uh, beautiful. So, well, sometimes it's unreal when you see what's happening and uh, this uh, huge amount of uh, information, new watches coming out. Uh, that's probably sometimes unreal, but uh, I'm pretty happy where I am. That It's interesting what you say, because I think that what's important in the watch industry is that a lot of emotions need to align at the exact same time for the watches to be effective. But those emotions come from people that have very different interests. There's the financial interest behind the watch brand who has one set of interests. There's the designer who has another set of interests. And the consumer or the retailer that has their own set of interests. And somehow the interests of all these parties who sometimes never speak to one another have to align. And it's it's very odd how... Uh, this is this has come to pass sometimes, you know, because I think that especially for you at Chrono Swiss, every year you're asking yourself, what is it that we need to make for the market, right? You're, aren't, aren't you always asking yourself, what is it that that you need to you, you need to do in terms of your next production run? It's probably a bit different because we're, we're a small family company, as you know, and uh, I think we have the liberty and the. And we're in the beautiful situation that me and my team, uh, we create the watches we think they're beautiful and uh, they're cool and they're different. So um, we're very much in tune, um, at least here in-house, of what we want to produce. And um, of course, you look out into the market and you say, uh, in terms of size, what it's coming up, uh, what do the consumer like? But I think we're very much independent in terms of what we want to produce which probably is different to some uh, bigger brands where they really go out in the market and say, what is in, what do we have to produce, what do we have to come up? So it's probably more a thing of copying what the consumer wants than uh, being all independent. So, okay, that's interesting. So you're saying that you're the type of business where your main incentive is to actually consolidate your your ideas and say, well, I can't do everything I want. What can I do? Versus scratching your head saying, what's going to sell? That, so that's what motivates you. It's being able to make something new 
And I guess you've just been lucky that there's enough people that want to own it that it gives you the opportunity to, after that, again, make something new. Right. I think we, we always try also to do something a bit different than the market even, because this gives us the, the edge that people are interested in our products. We don't want to be copycats. And uh, I think if we would be, uh, we wouldn't be successful. So you are the owner of Chrono Swiss, but you are not the original founder. The brand is now 40 years old. And the original founder actually just passed away. Um, and, and that was obviously a very sad thing. And I want to talk a little bit about that. But maybe you could explain a little bit why was Chrono Swiss developed? Because it's 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 not an old brand in the scheme of legacy brands, but it it predated you, and so you did the interesting thing of buying an existing brand, but not per se a historic brand. So I'm just curious, what compelled you uh, to take interest in Chrono Swiss? Well, I've always been a, a big watch fan, and uh, watches have been part of our daily discussion at home when I was a kid at the dinner table. So I was following Chrono Swiss since the 80s, basically. And uh, you remember the quartz crisis. And uh, during this time, um, when the Japanese uh, battery movements came in and, and kind of basically created a big problem in the Swiss watch industry, the original founder, Mr. Lang, he, he was uh, working with Tag Hoyer and uh, they didn't had the money to pay his salary. So he, he was uh, given his last salary with movements and the spare parts of watches. And that's how Chrono Swiss was created. And I wow. remember, yeah, it's a bit like uh, an Apple story. <laughs> and I remember uh, when Chrono Swiss came out with the first regulator and the Opus, et cetera, in the 80s, uh, there weren't these many mechanical watch brands at that time. They still existed, but nobody was talking about them because uh, they basically went uh, vanished. Uh, everybody was talking about uh, battery-driven movements, um, digital watches, etc. But I think the reinvention of the mechanical watch, uh, Chronos with uh, Mr. Lang was a big part of it. So this is uh, what's my history with the brand. And uh, it was more of a coincidence that I met with him. And we found out that there was no succession planning even though his daughter was working in the company for almost uh, 25 years, um, they decided uh, not to, to do the succession internally. And uh, he was very sad about this and was looking for a family succession and not so much to just sell what he has been uh, bringing up uh, in uh, well, selling to a big conglomerate where the just and the... Uh, the, the story and the name of Chronos, which probably wouldn't have uh, been able to continue. Now, were you looking for a watch brand and decided that Chronos Swiss was the right thing for you? Or were you not specifically looking to buy a watch brand and this opportunity arose? The opportunity arose, as you said. Um, I was always close to watches uh, as a collector, as a big fan of the mechanic watches. Uh, it was a coincident meeting with him, and uh, then there was the question. He grilled me, and he said, "Listen, uh, I think you could be very interested in, in looking deeper into this company." And that's how it all happened. So uh, I'm originally more from the pharmaceuticals, and there was an opportunity, and I loved the brand since the very beginning. 
when I was a child. And I said, let's let's take this opportunity. So what do you think he saw in you? What did Mr. Lang see? Because I think it's 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 an interesting story where you saw that there was a brand that, as you said, didn't have a succession plan. After his departure, there was no clear goal on what was going to happen with it. No idea, no clear ownership path. What what did he see in you? I mean, it's it's easy to love watches. You're not the only one. I love him too. It's, I mean, it's, it's great that you do, but it's an interesting thing that he he chose you. And obviously it was more, as you said, like a succession plan than I'm one businessman selling my company to another businessman. You know, it seemed like it was a little bit more of an intimate relationship. Well, I, I he very much uh, grilled me and we talked for many hours to, he wanted to find out uh, what it is all about. Uh, when we first met, it wasn't about succession. It was talking about watches and I took the opportunity. So uh, I think for him, it was very important that whoever takes over, uh, it remains a family business and a family affair. And also he wanted to make sure that uh, the DNA of Crown Swiss with the onion crown and uh, straight locks and uh, the satinage and, and so on, that this keeps the, the DNA of, of the old Chrono Swiss. And I think while talking to him, he, he found out that um, I do like the design. I like the old watches. And the idea was to, to take an evolution on them and not to, to create uh, completely new watches based on a Chrono Swiss name. How would, how would you define the old design? For me, it was like classic dial meets pilot, you know, classic aviator pilot watch case. Like, how would you define it? I always thought it, there was some some innovation to it, even though I don't like the, the term innovation, but it was always something different, something new. Um, there's a classical spirit to it. Uh, but of course, as I said, the, the brand needs to go through an evolution. Uh, and that's what we did, keeping the the classical and the, the DNA basically of the brand, but also evolutionizing the the rest of the design. And and talk a little bit about that. Like, is it is it your DNA? Are you basically saying, you know, I'm mixing what I like with what Chrono Swiss is? Do you have advisors that help suggest what the DNA is? I mean, I think I think it's a very interesting thing because you you don't want to fundamentally change the brand but you are making changes and who's responsible for those changes in the character. I think it's an interesting question because people always wonder like whose vision is his brand at this point? And are you saying it is you and solely yours? Yes, pretty much. I mean, it's, it's me and my team, but the final decision, which watch goes into production uh, is, is, uh, is staying with me. Um, we, we looked at the, at the beginning of Chrono Swiss and uh, for example, there was a lot of Yoshi at the beginning there was some enameling at the beginning and me personally being a big fan of old handicrafts, uh, it was very clear from the very beginning that this should be part or should be part again of uh, the Chrono Swiss uh, story. So uh, going back to your question, yes, the, the ideas, they, they, they pop up and then the process of coming to the right watch uh, is a, can be a long process with a lot of input from left and right and uh, we're a small team but i think basically uh, we don't have anybody from the outside helping on the design of where we want to go it's entirely done in-house 
I'm, I mean, I remember over the years, I mean, you're right. There's been a lot of variety and there's been a mixture of sport watches and classic watches and art watches. Um, you know, the, the old Delphus models were really, really cool with this jumping hour retrograde. Now you've sort of brought it back uh, with an even bolder dial with this guilloche. Do you think that things like guilloche and enameling are among the stronger ways for a luxury mechanical watch to assert themselves. Of course, you don't have to be mechanical to do this, but when trying to demonstrate craftsmanship and artwork, and we'll just frankly say it, value, um, it's, it's, it's difficult to keep ahead of the curve, but these seem to be two types of techniques that still need special machinery, still look very beautiful. Would you say that this is a, a, an artistic style that you're going to keep in the collection moving forward as much as possible? Definitely. Definitely. Okay. Um, I think that the handicraft, uh, well, first of all, I think the dial is the face of any watch. And that's where we started to uh, concentrate on. So uh, everything that is done uh, in terms of handicrafts, uh, the guilloching, the enameling, this is what is put on the dial. And this is definitely part of our DNA and will continue uh, in, uh, in any means. So you ha you were fortunate to acquire a brand from a founder that was still alive. And again, he unfortunately passed away. And I want to know your feelings about that. But I've always wondered, someone such as yourself, who's the new owner, in what instances do you ask the founder for help? Are you asking for advice all the time? Are you asking, why did you do this? Or do you actually not really need them? You just feel that you can just, you know, you know, you, you, they're, they're, it's great that they're around, but realistically speaking, you can do everything yourself. I've always been curious, what, you know, how, how, what is the relationship like with the, with the founder? Or what was it like? Well, the idea from both of us, but also from Mr. Lang very much in, in the beginning, was to get the new owner in and let him make the decisions. I remember well at the beginning, we were sitting together and I, I often called him up or I showed him the new designs. And I... I just wanted to see the way he looks at them. Uh, it's kind of a, uh, well, it was also right. kind of a friendship, you know. It, for him, it was uh, was a big step to let his company part to a new owner, which he didn't know this well. And uh, so it was more um, a sparing partner at the beginning. But it was very clear for him and also for me that we need to go into the next generation. And for this, um, we cannot uh, stay with with. On, on the old track and always uh, have a hand, uh, helping hand. So he was very much independent in, in this respect. Was he like you? Did he do all the designs himself or did he have a committee? You know, you, you mentioned that the brand started because he had a bunch of spare parts and movements, but where did the design ethos come from? Is it just what he had around or was it a specific look that he was trying to create? Well, I think in, in terms of, of the, the very special DNA, uh, aspects of Chrono Swiss. Uh, this has been in his mind from the very beginning. These are classic uh, parts of watches from the very past. Um, in terms of dial making and, and, and dial design, sorry, uh, this was all made by himself. So he had the idea in, 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 in his mind and then he was drawing or also like, like myself had somebody drawing uh, the dials and uh, doing the designs, etc. What was his ambitions? You know, he obviously wanted just to continue to do watchmaking. 
Um, but, you know, how did he take the brand? What was his ideas with it? Did he just want to be a watchmaker? Did he want to be a big international brand? I mean, the, the name of the brand, Chrono Swiss, you know, seems to go back to the area, era where, you know, there wasn't a lot of branding, but what was important was it was, it was it was from a particular region in the world, Swiss made, and people sort of like the word chronograph, chrono, this and that. Like, you know, there was an era where it was it was trying to sound, you know, interesting as opposed to putting a name on it. And why why did he go that direction? Some uh, a little bit more of a descriptive name versus maybe his name or, or something like that. I'm just curious. Well. Big brand. I think this was never his intention. He said, when, when uh, the whole quartz crisis came about, uh, he was just uh, disillusioned that nobody believes in mechanical watches anymore. And so his big goal was to stay with mechanical watches. And then ha- that's how the, the company was created in, in the garage, basically. And afterwards, of course, he was successful with his designs because he was uh, looking at the watches differently. Uh, you remember the first um, completely skeletonized uh, chronograph, the first regulator watch, which was also very different. Um, he was looking to be innovative and, and get the mechanical watch back to the people. So this was his big task and, and goal. As an independent brand, you basically can do whatever you want when it comes to the distribution and things like that. And you have a combination of e-commerce, and you have obviously authorized dealers and things like that. Um, are you sort of trying as many different channels as possible to see what makes the most sense for you? Or is there a, a, an evolving strategy behind your e-commerce? And, and, and what is it? Because I think it's different for brands and there's still a lot of evolution out there. And obviously you're very thoughtful for how you run the brand as well as how you design the watches. I'm just curious your particular philosophy right now to how to uh, uh, integrate e-commerce into everything else and just overall, you know, what is your sales and distribution strategy? We started with the e-commerce some, some, some years back and everybody looked at us saying, you can't do this, you have your partners out there. And we always said, listen, the e-commerce or having the watches online, this is the new window for your client. Whether he buys it directly online uh, or with the retailer, that's a different question. But uh, I think we were on the right track, having a nice window online, worldwide. And our strategy very clear today is to have two pillars the pillar with the retailers, because these are our partners for long term. And these are the ones who basically explain the watch to the end consumer, is it in the United States or in Japan or wherever. So you, you need good partners with good understanding uh, of watchmaking and uh, also the artisanal um, channels. And then at the same time, you have customers, um, because of convenience, they look at the internet, they found your watch and, and they want to have uh, they want to be in contact with the producer. So you have both channels today, and our strategy is clearly to use both pillars. Uh, of course, the online is a small part of, of the overall sales, but it's important. Do you want it to be more? Like, are those the aspirations to have this you know, model where people come to you? Or do you feel that, for the most part, you know, it's important to make it available to someone who just doesn't want to go to retail to retailer. But for the most part, working with retailers is is the way to go for the foreseeable future. I'm just curious what your feelings are on the matter. 
Well, you see, when, when you have direct customers and we have a small boutique here in Lucerne, um, it's beautiful to, to interact with your customers and to see why they like the watch. And in the end, we're a family business. We're not a big conglomerate. We're about 25 people all over. And, and that's small. So people expect also to be able to talk to me or to uh, the one who's doing the gearshe or to the one who's doing the enameling. So I think this interaction is also very important on the other hand. So we see what's, what's happening out in the market and, and uh, to see the reaction of the customers. You know, I, I'm on your website now and I'm seeing that you, you also got into certified pre-owned, which... I'd love to hear your experience there. You know, give a little bit of context to everyone. Certain brands, uh, Chrono Swiss in, included, have made the decision that directly to their to customers, in one way or another, on their website or in other places, they will make pre-owned watches available. Uh, ostensibly, you acquire these watches and you then um, you know service them and and then you resell them at a price that you determine. But in addition to selling brand new watches. You also have a selection of, we'll just call it, you know, historic watches from Chrono Swiss from around across the years. Talk a little bit about what that's like. I mean, everyone knows why people got into it. Now that you've been doing it for a while, talk about talk about being in the pre-owned industry. What's that like? Well, we're not in the pre-owned industry, which is started <laughs> a couple of years back. Uh, but you have these people calling up and saying, "Listen, I'm." Um, I collect watches and I collect Chrono Swiss and I'm looking for this watch and I found this one on, on uh, whatever channel. Uh, can you guarantee me it's a good watch? Uh, what's the price, etc.? So we started thinking about instead of, of, this is always difficult if somebody buys external uh, in, in, I don't know, in, as I said, in some of these, these, these uh, marketplaces where you don't know where the watch is coming from and what condition it is in. So we decided to have our own uh, pre-owned uh, marketplace. And yes, we, we do buy back watches, we service them, we make sure that they're in a good condition. And this also helps to um, interact with collectioners, with people who are probably looking for a long time for a watch that they couldn't find. Um, so that's, that's the way we came into this. Do you find that people aren't sure what to do, like... They want to buy a Chronos, they've made that decision. But then they go to the website and they're like, I don't know if I want one of the pre-owned ones or one of the new ones. Like, Or do you find that there's just very different customers? Like the people that want the new ones are not the same as the people who are looking for the old ones. It's a mix of both. Okay. Um, and this was, of course, also the goal. We wanted to also get the old customers with the old story and the classical design of Chronos with into the next generation. So I think today we look back and we're very happy to have to have taken a lot of these customers also to the, let's call it the 2.0 generation of Chrono Swiss. Uh, and then, of course, you have these ones which uh, only want to look at the watches that have been created uh, prior to, to taking over Chrono Swiss. So both groups exist, uh, but we have... Uh, the, the bigger group is a mix of both. So when it comes to pricing, is it hard to do? Do you have like a formula for that? Because I know that, that you know, coming up with retail pricing is one challenge and one special formula, but coming up with pre-owned pricing, it's such a hard thing to do because you want to sell, you want to be fair, but you don't want to erode the value. Do you find it to be interesting 
and and different to come up with pre-owned pricing as opposed to retail pricing, or is it is it easier? Is it harder? I, I'm just I'm curious because very few people have to do both. We we look at the market price. We try to 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 price it at the market price. Sometimes we get a watch back, and it needs much more um, service on it and, and rework than expected. Uh, so even we still try to to uh, not to overdo it with the price, even though it might have been more expensive to 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 uh, repair everything. Uh, you need to have a, a healthy balance. But in the end, we are proud of the past and of the old watches, and, and we also want to see them circulating. So it's it's a bit of a, a give and take. So do people come to you? Like, are they saying like, "Hey, I have this old one"? Do they try to trade in? Um, you know, do, and you, do you have if you had to increase your staff for e-commerce because you know between pre-owned and new and stuff like that, it's it's it seems like it's a different universe or a different business than just making watches and selling them for traditional wholesale channels. I only remember one person who came and traded in. Uh, we had some very nice old watches. People came, but but which is very nice. They don't want to trade it. They see if they want to, if they find an additional old watch or they look at the new ones. So many of our customers collect watches and uh, they have a story to the watch that they were wearing for many years. So not about trading it. Very oh, interesting. So, th- so they're, they're acquiring, but they're holding on to because they're forming collections. So you're finding that people are now treating Chrono Swiss as collectibles. Because a long time, you know, there was a few brands that people would collect. And, you know, Chrono Swiss was, you know, definitely a known brand. But now you're finding that there's actually a collector base. Is that is that a new phenomenon? Or has there always been this sort of like healthy set of Chrono Swiss collectors out there? I think there were always some healthy collectors out there. Yeah. Uh, I don't know since when, but um, because some of the watches are very particular and different looking, uh, people like to hold on to it. And as I said, most people, they were wearing the Chrono Swiss, not having it only in, in the safety box. So there's a history to what they have experienced with the watch during their lives. So it's this history people normally uh, carry on then with, the, with the watch and they don't want to trade it in. Also happens to me. I mean, <laughs> with, uh, with every watch I have, I, had, I have a history to it. So, uh, and I like to look back and remember the moments I have uh, put the watch on and where I've been with the family or with friends. So, yeah, I think it's probably similar. similar Look, issue. I'll admit, I don't like getting rid, rid of watches myself. But when you I see? do <laughs> the research, when I do the research, I find that people who have been collecting for 20, 10 or 20 years or longer... When you ask them about how many watches they have in their collection, you do the math, you're like, wait a minute, you should own more watches based upon how long you've been collecting and how many watches you say you buy. And then you realize that a lot of them, given at some point, start to trade it in. So it's clearly not all, but I've noticed that there's this behavior out there of trading and I think it's more prevalent or it could be more prevalent that it happens right now because as most collectors go on, unless you're weirdos like us and in, 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 in the industry, they tend to want to offload things they don't wear and consolidate because it would be stressful because some people, when their collection is like 100 watches, it freaks them out. They're like, I have too much. I can't. I don't wear it all. And they like want to reduce it. And other people are like, oh, their watches are small. It's not that big of a deal. But you know the sort of like itch to get rid of things that you don't want but to then acquire things you do want. Normally the collectors, they 
they keep on, right? Uh, we had now a, a younger person coming in who inherited uh, uh, Beagle Crossway's collection, and he said, listen, some of them I like, some of them I have a history to it, but uh, some of them I want to trade in. So this, of course, happens. But uh, if it's the original uh, person who started collecting, what we see now with our watches is that they, they don't want to uh, depart with the watches. They don't want to yeah, separate. So during the pandemic, Rolex prices were going crazy. You and I, again, had the conversation during part of this. What was the spillover like for Chrono Swiss? I know a lot of brands benefited because people couldn't get Rolexes and it seemed like watches were these investments. And here you are, you know, you're a low production company and you make decent stuff. What was the effect like you for those several years? And, and, and are there residual effects now from that extra tension that was put on the luxury watch industry in the way that it, it really hasn't seen in modern times? I think what happened for us um, is suddenly we were on the radar because people had time to study watches much more thoroughly than, than before. You finally had time to look at uh, what's out there. Uh, people were staying home, um, serving the internet, uh, getting interesting information from, from uh, people like you. So they started finding out that there's a, a lot of additional watch brands. And that's how I think we profited a lot uh, from, the, from the COVID situation. It helped us. Uh, suddenly we were on the radar, as I said, and we were connecting with people who before only were buying the one or two big brands. So it was a good time. Um, looking back uh, with, a, with a good feeling, which was not the case the first two or three months of COVID, uh, believe me. How do you build off of that? You know, there was all this extra attention, as you said, that people had extra time to examine. I mean, I tend to think that this is extremely positive. Like all this investment of time and attention is going to pay <clears throat> dividends over years, meaning it's going to benefit the industry. But now that there's, you know, some extra attention, it's going to be, you know, really at the brands that are active. What are you going to do the next few years to sort of ride the momentum while it's still there? Well, I think we created a, a pretty good base and also not producing these many watches where kind of exclusive. So being on the radar now and also with the, our formula of what is what we call modern mechanical, producing watches that have some roots in the past, but also using modern uh, materials or structures uh, and designs, this, uh, this combination, uh, modern mechanical, uh, is something that is different to many other brands. And I think we found our fan base. So we're not going to change a lot uh, to what we're doing today. We're just going to increase it. Geneva-based watchmaker Raymond Vile invites you to discover the beautiful Caliber RW1212 automatic movement. Designed exclusively for Raymond Vile in Switzerland, the RW1212 features an exposed balance wheel symmetrically positioned on the dial under a traditional watchmaker's bridge. Inspired by the world's great musical composers and instrumentalists, Raymond Vile harmoniously integrates the RW1212 movement into a family of products that now also includes the visually captivating RW1212 skeleton. 
Raymond Vial is a family-owned and operated company that for more than 45 years has been celebrating independent watchmaking for enthusiasts everywhere. Visit raymond-wild.com to see more. It's interesting you mentioned that because I think you're right. If there's two things that would define what Chronos Swiss has been doing a lot of in the last couple of years, it's materials and colors and finding these specific codes and complications that make sense for you. And I want to start before we talk about cool materials and colors, which again, if you go to the Chronos Swiss website, it is a colorful experience in a great way. But the regulator, the the the, the humble little regulator has been something that isn't a feature of every one of your watches, especially historically. But in the modern sense, you made this decision and you said the, the regulator dial is in a lot of ways going to be the cornerstone of the brand. Explain the origin of the regulator. What What is it? I mean, again, I can help. And and why you feel this is an important look for uh, for Chronoswiss and what it means to you. What does the, the regulator, you know, when you see it visually, what does it make you feel? Well, the regulator is a big part of our heritage, uh, but not only, of course. But uh, sometimes back, we said, listen, we have to reinvent the regulator, uh, making it a, a strong part of the collection. The regulator, as you know, it goes back uh, to the to the uh, wall clocks uh, in the 60s, 70s, before you had the atomic uh, clocks. So this regulator wall clock has been the most precise watch for taking time. We have one here still hanging at the wall. And if it's nicely organized and mounted, it has a difference of 10 seconds a year as a mechanical watch. So this is quite amazing. And these regulator watches were used to regulate the movements uh, in some of the fabrication halls up to the 70s. So in 1980s, Mr. Lang was taking the regulator dial the look of it, and was the first one to put this regulator dial onto a wristwatch. So that's, in a, in a nutshell, the story behind the regulator and why Chronosphere is so much linked to a regulator. Okay, I didn't realize that he had, you know, been one of the foundational people to put in a wristwatch. And it, it caught on, but it's also sort of quirky. Do you find that some people, even though it's pretty straightforward, are confused by it? Because I've always found it interesting that if you're not familiar with looking at you know, the, 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 the various universe of analog dials, if you don't see the standard hands in the central, you know, hour and minute position, a lot of people get really confused. Do you ever find that? Not very much. People sometimes <laughs> ask, but the idea also of the, of the regulator was you have this hand from the central, which is the minute hand, and the hour hand is, is a far part of it. So it's decentralized. So when I look at the watch and also talking to my, my clients and friends, uh, they're always interested what minute you have. Because, you know, if it's one, two or three o'clock in the afternoon, but you want to know if it's 10 before or 10 after. And this big hand just concentrating on the minute, this was also the idea to have it uh, to be able to precisely read the watch. So I think it's more a question of, of getting used to it, uh, but we... Well, we never have anybody really asking because it's uh, intuitive. I mean, I, I think it is, but I just, I, I guess maybe that speaks to the type of consumer the brand is talking to because I I would be surprised if a lay consumer who's not familiar with the variety of watch styles out there 
I'd just be surprised if most of them weren't taken aback and be like, wait a minute, what am I looking at here? Again, if you are familiar with watches, I mean, you grew up with it, right? I mean, it, 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 it might even be shocking to you that some people might be confused by it. But I, I just, I think that there's a, a, an interesting thing which, which happens when these types of, what I guess in the sense are esoteric dials, when the mainstream looks at them, what do they think? Do they just think like, that's cool, it looks interesting, or do they, do they think it looks beautiful? It's it's just fascinating to me, and you know, like you said, it, you need to look at the consumer. Um, is there ever a desire to make your your brand more mainstream, or do you like being, you know, smaller production for people that know? Probably not someone's first luxury watch. Is that what you're trying to be right now? I think that's uh, who we are, and this will not change a lot. We're, we're not uh, a watch friend for for the masses. Most of our customers they have a history with watches. They have a history of Chrono Swiss, so they look for something different. So uh, that's that's the background of our of our strategy. Yes, and I think uh, it's not that we only produce regulator watches, as you know, but uh, the regulator or the or the combination of these uh, new materials with uh, old Gucci or the enameling, it's just a different look and the different uh, making of. And very often the people are amazed to hear about the story. Is it the story about the regulator? I think once you know where it comes from, it's quite fascinating. Are there other things from your own taste? You said you grew up with watches and you know you could add on to the brand. You're just you're not stuck with what Mr. Lang himself came up with. You know, what 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 would you add? What is sort of a uh, an Oliver signature complication or dial display if you had to have something different? I very much like to not depart too far away because it's beautiful if you have a brand that chose a story over the last 40, 50 years, maybe sometimes 60 years, uh, and you see where it comes from. So for me, it's also very important to have complications and design aspects that show you where we're coming from and where we're going. So this thin red line is important. So I'm not uh, trying to, to find the super new complication nobody has thought about. Uh, I'm much more concentrating on, on the dial making and, uh, and find new ways uh, of combinations there. Okay, that make, that makes sense. I mean, it, look, it's it's always a matter of, uh, of strategy and, you know, do you invest in new movements and things like that? But I think at the end of the day, you're right. You know, there's there's a lot of variety out there at how to tell the time. Usually the simple ones are what sell the most. And when you have to have product differentiation, it's not really in the mechanics these days. It's in how the watch looks, which is, uh, it's a cosmetic battle, right? At least it is for me. I mean, of, of course, the beautiful, complicated watches. Um, but in the end, you want to have a watch that you wear, that you look at it every day and that you love, that... People ask you what it is about. You have a story behind it. I think that's what uh, what's the gist of it. Now, just 10 years ago, I think we saw a lot less, not, not, not even to mention colors, but of the textured dials that we see today, whether it's a texture, an engraving, a pattern, uh, a, a motif of some type. Uh, you have some that look like Jupiter, for example. This was relatively rare outside of very, very exclusive, crazy high-end things. And all of a sudden, we started to see this in lower-cost watches, even some that are a few hundred dollars. 
What do you think was responsible for this? Obviously, a company like yours benefited because you had some heritage in this and you could build on it. But this sort of elaborate dial trend, where, where do you think this is coming from? And I guess, you know, it goes without saying you're very happy about it. <laughs> As you say, uh, we started with this in the probably about seven, eight years ago. And we didn't look at the market and, and ask ourselves, uh, what do people want? We just said, it's interesting to have a certain depth in a dial, uh, different layers. Uh, as a kid, I always loved these miniature worlds where you could dive into. And I think this is how the idea came came up. Uh, so we are lucky today that this is a, seems to be a trend. People like to have more things being done and working uh, on, on a dial. And we're in the middle of it. So these three-dimensional dinosaurs are called them and that we're working with now for many years. It's, it's a pleasure to see what's happening. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's like uh, you're taking a scuba dive into a, into a nice uh, coral reef, I think. Yeah, I mean, if we're talking about the depth of the Chronoswiss you know, dials, especially the ones you're doing now, yes, that's a slightly different matter, but the colors and the depth create a visual diorama of movement and shapes and architecture, which is great. But just going back to the whole colors and things like that, like, and I guess maybe I'm bringing it up because I'm shocked. I am literally so shocked how over the past 10 years, consumer sentiment has changed. Like, I've always been pretty open-minded. Like, I've worn colors and wild things. My tastes have not changed, but people have gone from being very conservative to just all of a sudden, like, not having any interest in like a black dialed watch or something like that. Like if it's not colorful, if it's not textured, they're not interested. And is it not kind of amazing to you how people have made a complete 180 transition on this matter of how conspicuous the display of their watch is? You know what I mean? <laughs> yes, it has changed quite a lot. You're right. Uh, also here, we, we were happy to be in the middle of it all. Well, we also started eight, nine years ago, you maybe remember, with the first uh, coated blue dial um, casing and, and uh, dials and casings. I always loved colors, and I also tried, when coming back from holidays or whatever, to, to apply a color that I've seen in the Mediterranean Sea, for example, onto a dial. So that's how, how we came about the colors, and then it got more crazy. And in, in the end, I think today... In our world where so much is mass and uh, you want to be a little bit individual. So I think that's probably why the trend is here, that people go for colors, for uh, different shapes, uh, being a bit louder. Because if you want to talk about your piece, uh, it needs to be different. And if it's just one of a hundred thousand similar pieces, it's maybe not this interesting. And I think people like today uh, to tell stories. Where did they bought the watch? Why? Why is it different? So it's a... Uh, it's a product uh, that is, is part of your daily life. Okay, so now let's talk about colors. And starting a few years ago, you really started to go wild with colors. I remember when the blue one came out. This was a few years ago. I don't remember the name of the exact model, um, but I remember you know joking about calling it the blue note and things like that. And it was a little bit of concern. <laughs> is it too? Is it too blue? You know, this was this was a perfect example of what you're talking about, where you looked into a deep dial, and the dial was blue, and the case was blue, and the strap was blue, and everything was blue. Legible, it was very legible, but it was all blue. And that seemed to embolden you. 
And then you started, now you have purple, which I think is a great color. And I, and I'm, I'm loving that purple is becoming, uh, this, this new thing. We have many shades of blue and then you have colorful ones and you just look at your catalog now and it's just shining with colors like it's Christmas. And, you know, I, again, I'd love, I love your thoughts. Like, are we going to look at this in 20 years and be like, oh my God, what was all this crazy color? Or are we going to be looking at the times where everything was so conservative and be like, why were they so boring with their watches for so long? Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> I remember very well when we looked the first time many years back together at the flying regulator manufacturing blue. Uh, this is the one you were just referring That's to. That's the one. Sorry, no, I forgot that specific no, no title. Worries. So uh, easy to remember. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, uh, that's how it all started. Looking back in 10 years from now, um, I mean, we're not only doing colorful and bold watches. Uh, we also have a lot of uh, classic colors. We have a lot of uh, black and gold colors, uh, blue with silver. So... Um, of course, the ones which pop out when you go through the catalog, these are the colorful ones, the, the endorphin, the, the purple, the paraiba, and all these, uh, which, by the way, all have a, a story to the colors because there's a, a special stone which looks like the paraiba color. Uh, there's a special orange which reminds us of the, of the dunes of the Sahara, etc. So there's always a story behind the color. It's just, a, just taken and, and put an into it. Um, but... I think, and when I look at the new uh, watches coming up here at the Crown Swiss, they will be different, but there's also now, also, at least in, uh, for us, a, a trend to be less colorful in some ways. Uh, you will see this uh, next year. Color, but not the shiny color. So it will be a mix of it. And when you look through the catalog, you will also find, as I said, some more classical uh, watches and colors. But yes, the trend right now is being loud, uh, having a piece that nobody else has and that it's shining and you see it from far away. And that's what you can do when you when you take some of the of the watches out of the catalog. Do you find that people buy one of these and they're done? They're like, okay, I got my colorful Chronos with I'm done. Or it's like, you know, I started with a little hint of uh, a dash of yellow and all of a sudden I'm going, you know, full on purple watch that's, you know, purple case, purple dial, all that. Um, you know, or, what, how does it work exactly? Do they, do they start to want, I like, oh, I have a green one. I need a blue one. I need a, I need a yellow one now. I'm just wondering how with the psychology, because colors seem to be more imminently collectible than neutral colors. Like, you know what I mean? Well, this reminds me of a story with an American customer, um, who was a big uh, golf player. And when he was standing here at our boutique, um, he, he, he chose this, uh, orange watch and he said, listen, that's exactly uh, like my polo shirt, and that's what I need for the for the golf course. I need a watch that fits my the rest of my outfit. So you have a lot of these kind of customers who 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 are not the one time customers, but they buy two, three, four watches uh, from us, uh, different colors, because they, it's a part of their um, outfitting, and uh, yeah. And then you have others um, who just like the combination and because it's bold and it's different, they go for one color and that, that's probably their only watch they buy. Where is this color thing going to go for your brand? Because at some point you've sort of done all the colors, 
you just keep making them? Do you just have a constant purple watch you make? Or do you have to just stop purple for a while and make people feel hungry again and be like, Oliver, please bring purple back. And you're like, well, when the time is ready, I will do that. Like, I'm just wondering because it's, it, you know, it, it's special the first time and the second time you have the purple watch. I don't know if it's something that is special all the time. Like it's a permanent, you know, there's like the Navy blazer. They can just keep making Navy blazers and somebody will will buy them. Is it the same way with some of these other colors? And I'm, I'm, I'm really trying to understand because I think that it's great that we have them, but I don't really know what the consumer um, wants on an ongoing basis. I think there's new standards, right? Like I think that blue and the various shades of it are permanently in. Is purple a trend? I'd just love to hear your thoughts about it. There's certain colors, as you said, which uh, which I think are now basics. People like them. They got used to it. They want to have this uh, in our repertoire, in our collection. And then the, the purple, um, I don't know yet. I mean, we did, anyway, all the watches we do are, are limited to 50 pieces. So we did 50 oh, pieces. Oh, really? All so of them? Is that true? So every watch you make? 80% is of our collection is limited. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Sorry, go ahead. So, so the 50 pieces, uh, endorphin with it, uh, they stay 50 pieces and uh, they're well sold. But I'm not sure if I'm going to do a, 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 a Velvet watch again within the next couple of months. So it, it all depends when we prepare the designs and, and how it looks. Uh, and new colors coming up. There's a beautiful orange I just found with one of our suppliers. Uh, I think that's probably the next watch I want to try out, which is loud and bold and different. There, there are certain colors and things that just can't be done because there aren't materials that are stable enough or durable enough and things like that. You know, what do you do to hunt uh, or to, for new materials and techniques? Obviously, certain brands get lucky and they find a material or a manufacturing technique which was never originally intended for the watch industry, but then they bring into it and it, it makes sense for watch cases. What do you have to do as an entrepreneur to go out there and bring in new things that are innovative, or do you just sort of wait for stuff to come to you? I'm just curious how it works because it's a it's an it's a certain area of research and development which I think is quite important. Well, we are not in the size uh, terms of a company that others come to us and offer new things. I have to go out and, and look for them. Okay, uh, but I'm in the beautiful position to to live here in the in the heart of watchmaking and uh, also math technology. So it's just a couple of hours uh, ride up into the Jurassic Mountains or the direction Geneva or Zurich. Uh, there's a lot of very innovative companies. And um, the more you interact, uh, the more you find out that there might be new ways and possibilities, and colors, or structures that, that, that they will try out. So uh, it, it's a hunt for new things. And uh, that's one of the nice things uh, when I'm out trying to come up with uh, with new ideas. I'm glad you mentioned that because most people not in this industry may not realize that you have this option of visiting suppliers who have all these sample parts and things that they think you'll want, and you can go to them and be like, okay, I, I want to get some new case colors. Show me what you've been working on. And they can show you samples of things like that. I don't think people necessarily recognize that there's a lot of that going on. Yes, sometimes you have something specific and you're like, I wanted something that no supplier would make and I challenged them and they did it. But a lot of the time, 
they have these ideas and they're just waiting for brands like you to get creative ideas on how to build it in your new products, right? Often, yes, often. There are already existing uh, products or colors or whatever. It just has to be tried out. And as you also mentioned before, uh, very often, and I think this is more than uh, half of the, of the time, that you try out something, it just doesn't work. Uh, galvanic coloring. Sometimes they're beautiful colors, uh, you apply them, and after a couple of weeks, you find out it's not stable. So having a beautiful brownish, deep, uh, uh, shiny color, and then finally turns into, into black after a couple of weeks. So it's a lot of trial and error at the same time. Um, also in, in terms of uh, enameling, uh, we just bought a lot of uh, old enameling powder colors uh, that we now try out in-house to see what uh, what we come up with. Some of the colors you cannot use because they're not nice. Uh, some, <laughs> of the, some of the powders, uh, they are 50, 60 years old. So you even don't know what you have in the, in the box when you open it. Sometimes you have an incredible green color, which I've never seen before. And, and <laughs> that's where we continue. Sometimes I feel that watch brands have to be like children with really good taste because they have to pretend like they're playing with arts and crafts all the time. Where they're like, I wonder what this looks like. I wonder if we mix this together, what it will be look like. But then when you make a new composition, you not only need to be playful, but you need to look at it with some maturity and say, okay, we made something new. But is it beautiful? Is it attractive? Does anybody want to look at it for more than a moment? Does it have anything other than shock value? And there's this, I don't really know how to describe it as part of Swiss culture, and, and they're not the only culture that has it, but it's definitely not universal, where you tend to look at something and you'd be able to say, after some you know, um, contemplation, will this look test you know, or pass the test of time? Will it continue to look good 5, 10, 20 years, maybe 50 years from now? And I think that something about the Swiss culture is quite good at being able to determine if something is going to look good for a long time. And that's, I guess that's part of what you pay for in the sort of more elevated luxury product as opposed to sort of the more experimental art product that could easily be ugly. And like you said, in a couple of months, deteriorate. Thank you for the compliment. <laughs> uh, as I mentioned at the beginning of our talk, I think it's about this thin red line. And uh, being the owner of the company, of course, you can come up with, with all kinds of crazy ideas, etc. But in the end, it needs to fit into this collection that you build up for 50 years and more. So th there are many beautiful examples of, of other products where you see where they are coming from and where they're going. So it's it's always making sure that uh, even if you have a new material, let's say, or something uh, uh, outstanding, it needs to fit the brand and the product. So yes, often uh, we are all cheering uh, uh, above a, a new design that we did. And then at the next moment, um, I take the design paper and I say, listen, you know what, guys, let us put this into a, uh, in, into a, uh, next to us for a couple of weeks and then we take it out and we think about it again because right now it looks amazing and good but I'm not so sure if this is part of the overall collection and often it happens we take it out and we say okay that's not it 
And that's what needs to be done. And I think it's also interesting, you know, when you go on the website and you look at the colors and you ask yourself what colors aren't there, and that's probably very telling because you've tried something and while you wanted it to work, right now it doesn't. But it's also true, and I guess this is sort of where we'll we'll end our, our conversation, is that there is innovation. Every couple of years, there's new technologies to create colors, materials, like even though, yes, it's quite slow in the field of watchmaking, in the field of materials and colors, it feels like there's a lot of actual movement right now, new things coming along. Is it just seem this way or is that actually true? There's maybe more movement in that area or at least more focus on the watch industry in materials and colors than there was a bit historically. There's a lot of new materials that people try out. I think that beautiful materials, which are light, um, yeah, different, uh, different looks. That's definitely uh, the case today, as you say. Whereas a couple of years back, it was probably more people going and uh, exploring into the mechanics and, and uh, etc. So, yes, there's also more innovation in terms of materials today. So, make, we make use of it. Uh, the, the whole industry makes use of it. Do you think that some brands use new materials too quickly? And when I say too quickly, they haven't properly tested it to make sure that it, um, you know, is going to be durable and, you know, going to not change colors. I mean, I've heard of some very expensive brands having to recall watches because some of these exotic materials, um, you know, they, they, they can break, they can crack, they can start to uh, fragment or break apart. Uh, sometimes they're fine, but I, I just wonder, is your opinion that, because um, again, you seem to be quite level-headed about it, but I know not everyone else is. I mean, some of these materials shouldn't be used, right? I don't want to go into <laughs> details, but yes, this is happening quite a lot uh, because people are just uh, crazy on getting things out into the market. As a family company, we're we're more conservative here, probably uh, trying out things first. Uh, I can, I, we cannot do a recall. This would be crazy. So um, now I'm talking to a supplier, which is a beautiful light material kind of carbon, whatever. But I haven't tested it in terms of, of uh, uh, color stability over the years. So that's something we're doing now before we go into this project uh, any farther. Uh, we not just decided that we're going to come up with a, a lot of new casing done in titanium because this is an existing material, beautiful. It can also be nicely, yeah, nicely reworked if, if needed. So it's always a, a compromise uh, of what you want to achieve. I think it's a really good time to be looking at Chrono Swiss because, you know, like you said, you have these signature complications. The watches are for the most part, not just telling the time in a standard way or there's an additional complication on there. There's a lot of playfulness from the retrograde seconds that are just, you know, there to have a little bit of fun and then all these different colors and dial depths and stuff like that. Not for everyone, but it's really nice to see Chrono Swiss kind of hitting an, an interesting stride. Uh, the website is chronoswiss.com and we have plenty of editorial coverage on a blog to watch. Oliver, I want to thank you so much for being on this episode of the Superlative Podcast. Well, Ariel, I have to thank you. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at a blog to watch .com. 
For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com.